Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I am a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Basically, I study how people move before and after chiropractic care. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Frank Scully. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. Here's a review that I received on the Chiropractic Science website from Jonathan Studer, DC, and he says, I'm very happy to have found this podcast. The content is so important. It should be mandatory for all licensees in our profession. Thank you for your time and effort in producing this content. Well, thank you, Dr. Studer, for listening and sharing your feedback. If you'd like to leave an audio review that I might include on a future episode, just connect on Facebook or send me an email. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website by making a donation. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Frank Scully. Dr. Frank Scully grew up in Valley Stream, Long Island, New York, and studied neuroscience at Stony Brook University. In 2009, he received his doctorate in chiropractic at Logan University in Chesterfield, Missouri. During his time in medical school, Dr. Scully professionally prosected cadaveric specimens for Gray's Anatomy and illustrated for multiple journals and textbooks, including the Oxford Handbook of Bariatric Surgery. While attending medical school, he published multiple non-variant anatomical findings in the medical literature and served as an ad hoc reviewer in journals such as the Spine Journal, the Anatomical Record, Surgical and Radiological Anatomy, and others. In 2018, he graduated with his MD from AUC, AUC School of Medicine with 54 publications, including textbook contributions and a patent for a medical device. Dr. Scully is a board certified uh, in chiropractic and medicine both. He cur- his current title is Assistant Professor of Medical Education and Anatomy at the California University of Science and Medicine. At CUSM, Dr. Scully serves as the director of the Atlas Lab Center, is the director of the USMLE Board Preparation, and is the course director for MSK uh, slash DERM Surgical Anatomy and the Step 1-2-CK Board Prep course. He was inducted into Sigma Xi Scientific Research and Honor Society in 2020 and serves on the editorial board for the Journal of Medicine since 2019. As assistant professor of medical education, Dr. Scully has achieved dozens of teaching awards in medical foundations, MSK Durham, neuroscience, reproductive medicine, and medical board preparation courses. Because of his innovative teaching style in 2021, Dr. Scully became the inaugural recipient of the Robert Susskind and Leslie Lewinter Susskind Preclinical Faculty of the Year Award. Well, Dr. Scully, thanks so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dean. I appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, I'm just so excited. Uh, I don't know how long this is going to take. It might take a while <laughs> to uh, to get through everything, but uh, it'll be well worth it. So I tell you what, I, I always like to ask the question first off uh, from all of my guests, and that is, how did you become interested in becoming a chiropractor? Yeah, so interesting question. Um, basically, I uh, in in college or an undergrad, I my roommate both of his parents were chiropractors. And also at the same time, I was working as a personal trainer in a chiropractic medical facility. It was, um, there was MDs, DOs, and DCs working alongside each other. And I just became fascinated with the biomechanics of the human body. And one of the, um, since I was close with my roommate at the time, his parents, I used to uh, venture over to their practice and seen what they were doing. And it seemed almost, um, hate to say it, but magical in this sort of sense of how they were treating some of these patients. But what really sold it for me was uh, I had a wrist injury and the chiropractor at my job um, did a simple adjustment. And at the time I thought it just completely resolved the issue uh, almost immediately as well. So after that I was sold and I looked a little deeper into it and that's when I uh, joined chiropractic. Well, that's cool. And so you went to, to Logan and I imagine there's got to be a story behind how you got into studying anatomy and specifically the upper cervical spine. Uh, it just seems like you're, you're, you know, really into, uh, into anatomy. So why don't you tell us where this came from? Yeah. Um, so to be honest, when I first started chiropractic, uh, college, I was terribly afraid of the cadaveric specimens, um, kind of grew up in a religious household and I feared, uh, working with the dead. And, uh, so, but once I overcame that fear by understanding what was beneath the skin, that's when, uh, you know, this form took place. It was almost a, as an artistic approach to the whole prosection aspect of, uh, learning anatomy. So I learned how to prosect and I overcame that fear of, uh, of the dead. And I realized that it was a beauty beyond the skin. And from there, I just saw how basically in, in what humans create uh, meaning uh, in our society is mostly mocked after the human body and its design. So I became really obsessed with this. And in fact, it's what taught, I learned how to prosect on my own. And I also uh, learned how to illustrate because I want to share this beauty that I was seeing with the rest of the world. So it taught me how to illustrate. It taught me how to prosect. And of course, I've started learning the language of anatomy. And that became uh, just, com I was just completely fascinated by it. And I still am to this day. Uh, it's just kind of overtaken everything I'm doing in, in life. Um, yeah. So that's how I, with the upper cervical spine that kind of found me to be honest. And that kind of bleeds into the story of these research articles that we're going to be discussing today. It's, it's almost as if I was very interested in some of these connections between the muscle and the dura. And I just so happened to stumble upon uh, the inferior myodor bridge. And that's what took me on into this path of learning about fascial connections as well as the upper cervical spine. Okay. Now, just from our discussion uh, before we actually got on the podcast uh, from a few weeks ago, uh, my understanding is that you were you were so interested in this upper cervical spine anatomy that uh, you wanted to continue doing this research and you sought out uh, uh, another professor at a medical school to do this, and and you actually went through the medical program. So why don't you tell us about that journey of going from chiropractic school to medical school? Absolutely. So 
October 1st, 2009, I was still in chiropractic college. I graduated in that same year. Um, I graduated in December 2009, and that's when I stumbled upon this structure. It was uh, on my birthday of all days. It was October 1st, 2009. I had nothing else to do on that day, better to do on that day. So I, <laughs> I went to the lab. And um, I stumbled upon this structure, and I, I can go into a little bit of detail of how this happened. There was a laminectomy or a body that was prone, and at that point, I was a senior prosector at Logan University, and I was also a tutor or TA. And when I walked in, I noticed that there was this body that was prone, and it had a full laminectomy except for C1 and C2. Those two vertebrae were still intact, and I remember that there was a story that we learned during chiropractic college about uh, a doctor by the name of Gary Hack, and he identified this myodural bridge. So I said, oh, this is a great opportunity for me to identify this. And when I walked over to the cadaveric specimen, I noticed that there was um, the rectus capitis posterior major was also attached, uh, still in situ. And I pulled on it, and I noticed that there was movement in the dura mater of the spinal cord. So I reported it to the professor that was there and they looked at me and they said, I want my name on this paper. That's all they said to me. And from there, I just became completely obsessed with research. Um, I started looking at journal articles and whatnot, and I started reproducing um, the same type of laminectomy on other specimens that were in the lab at the time. Uh, there's a specific way that you have to dissect or uh, prosect the specimens in order to identify this structure, meaning the inferior myodural bridge. But uh, so I learned how to do a hemilaminectomy and I perfected this procedure. But unfortunately, I, I was graduating in a few months. So I tried to write the paper real, you know, quickly. And um, there was, it was just not enough time. So following graduation, I was planning on going to medical school anyways, uh, just because I thought that I wanted to learn a little bit more about uh, patient care. And uh, I went to a medical school where there was um, a top doctor in anatomy. And when I revealed it to this um, PhD MD, um, they didn't believe me at first that I found a new structure. And so it's been hills up and down. So I had to prove it. And then from there, I um, found that another medical school, AUC, had a doctor by the name of Lance Nash, who was a head and neck fascial specialist. And so I transferred over into that medical school instead to work alongside him. And from there, we were able to publish um, a couple papers together, not only on this area of anatomy, but also on the anterior fascia of the alar fascia, which is on the retropharyngeal space. So we found a couple of new discoveries in these areas. Um, his specialty was also, he was an anatomist, and he, he, um, he specialized in plastination. So I was able to learn a lot of techniques from uh, this individual who sadly passed away in 2016. So that was basically the journey in a nutshell. Um, again, there was a lot of ups and downs because you do have to prove that you're finding a new structure in the human body, which is no small feat. And, uh, but looking back at it, I'm glad I kind of went through the whole process. Yeah, I mean, it's totally fascinating. As I was prepping, uh, reading the articles that we're going to talk about uh, today, I was prepping yesterday. And, um, you know, it was, it was just fascinating reading through all of these papers and the lengths that you had to go through to, to document uh, this connection. And uh, also, I just want to say, while I'm thinking about it, the this myodural bridge, for those who may not have a, a ton of anatomy background, we, we do have some patients listening. Uh, just want to 
say say what it is and and get any feedback from you. But basically, myo refers to muscle, and duro refers to a, a part of the spinal cord. And so, this is a literally a connection between the the muscle in the upper cervical spine and the spinal cord. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah, that's correct. It, it's it's uh, there's a jacket around the spinal cord and this these muscles and vertebrae, the bones in the neck, uh, they all attach in a very predictable fashion. And this is a non-variant um, finding, and not only found in human anatomy, but also across all species. So it, it most likely has some sort of uh, functional um, ability to, we'll say, maybe at this point, we can say that it, it can control the fluid that surrounds the spinal cord. Yeah, and we're going to get into, you know, the all the potential uh, not just anatomical implications, but clinical implications. I like the way you put that. It's it's more or less a complex, isn't it? We have bone, muscle, and we've got the uh, the dura as well. So intricate right. connections. Uh, it's pretty awesome stuff. So I'm I'm curious. Then you, you've gone through medical school, chiropractic school. Um, you know, chiropractors always want to know, and I think medical doctors want to know too. You know what? What's the difference between the two schools? I mean, on the face of it, it seems like you'd get, um, you know, maybe more pathology uh, in medical school than than we would have in chiropractic school. There's obviously a lot of hands-on in chiropractic school. Uh, but what did you what did you notice about the two different schools? Yeah. <laughs> I get this question all the time from both chiropractors and medical students, and. Um, even medical doctors. The big difference here is I think that it's all about when you get to the patient. That's what I've kind of, how I summarize it. Uh, with chiropractic school, it felt, it, they were both very difficult to get through. There's a tremendous amount of work that has to be instilled in, in both. In chiropractic school, it's more about anatomy biomechanics, um, you know, more nutrition as well. So you're dealing with I don't know, more biomechanical approach to certain patients. Whereas in medical school, there is an, uh, an admission test that you have to take in order to get in, which makes it a little bit a dip more difficult to get in. Uh, and once you're in medical school, it's a lot of pharmacology, microbiology, pathophysiology. So it's a lot of time living inside your own head and imagining the processes and how they occur. Not that chiropractic school didn't have that, but it was a different mindset of thinking because it was more about biomechanical approaches. Whereas in medical school, it's more about how the microcosm interacts with itself. So, and, and with pathology as well. So again, they were both very difficult, um, especially the first two years of both. Uh, because of the amount of information that has to be um, uh, understood. I don't like to say the word memorize because you're not memorizing anything. You have to understand uh, the the complex uh, science. And I think the only other part that I think the reason why medical school is so difficult is because of the board exams that you have to take, which um, I'm the director of the USMLE, as you stated before, and that's a United States medical licensing exam. And those tests are extremely difficult to get through. And they're also, they get a three point score that kind of dictates your future of where you're headed to as a specialist. Uh, whereas in chiropractic college, it was more of, you have to get through the board exams uh, and, and not necessarily that it was, um, you know, there's a no three digit score for it that you have to, you have to pass them, obviously, but that those years of your life in medical school studying for the USMLE is probably the most brutal. And that's why I support it hundred percent in my career as a, as an educator. So that's the difference between the two. Okay, great. And 
can you tell us, did you ever have a chance to practice as a chiropractor or a medical doctor before you went uh, into teaching at a medical school? Nope. nope. And I think that we have this mile to a bridge to thank for that. Uh, it wasn't really, I, I didn't really like to, to uh, work with patients, to be honest. I mean, I, I respect physicians that do want to get take on that task. But for me, it's more about um, the sciences that are that uh, underline this and the guidelines. That's what I actually appreciate more so. So I never actually went into teaching. I mean, I'm sorry, I never went into practice. Um, maybe in the future I will, but currently it's more about the process of becoming a doctor that I, I enjoy. Uh, learning how people think, but also a large component of this is this myodual bridge. It's taken me 12 years to get this stuff in print. And I feel that I can do more so with this butterfly effect than I can helping patients individually and one-on-one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get it. You know, there's uh, in my world, uh, I don't have an MD, I have a PhD. And so, you know, teaching and doing research and that sort of thing is, is basically similar. It sounds like to, to what you're doing. And, uh, it is, you know, it's a different world than in practice, but they both have their ups, downs, challenges and excitement, uh, for sure. And, uh, it's, yeah, we, I guess we could have a whole different podcast about that, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but let's uh, honestly, go, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. You want to move on. That's fine. Oh, I was going to say one more thing. It's, you know, you do get to try out working with patients, uh, it, during it, it, when you're a chiropractic student, as well as when you're a medical, uh, when you're a medical student and those last two years, you get to, you can see what it's like to live that lifestyle. And for me, it was just, I'm, I'm institutionalized. I've been in school for a very long time, 18 years I was in school. So I'm just heavily, uh, into the, uh, teaching aspect and learning. That's, that was just the way my life panned out. Yeah, no, I get it. I, I totally into that model too. Okay, well let's uh, let's get into uh, several papers that you've published on the upper cervical spine, this myodural bridge in particular, and I want to get the idea of you know uh, what what was done in the past in terms of the upper cervical spine. We'll get a little history lesson, maybe a quick one, and then uh, we'll get into you know what how you have contributed and how your research has contributed to what we know now. We'll get into uh, some of the clinical aspects as well. So I'm super excited to to get into this. So let's just dive in, um, and uh, we'll talk about this first study uh, published in 2011. And this is uh, an anatomical connection between the rectus capitis posterior major and the dura mater. So. Uh, again, for, for those who may not have a ton of anatomy background, uh, there are several suboccipital muscles, uh, muscles that are beneath the skull, if you will, that connect uh, to the cervical spine. And that's the location that we're talking about. So the upper part of the neck uh, and its connection to the spinal cord. So you had mentioned already in our conversation thus far today about Gary Hack. Uh, I remember I was in chiropractic college when that paper was published. Uh, Gary Hack published this paper on a connection between another suboccipital muscle, the rectus capitis posterior minor, and the cervical dura mater. Um, and that was, you know, huge news. I remember that made uh, the cover of Dynamic Chiropractic uh, at the time and, and many other publications. People were talking about there was a lot of excitement uh, about this, as I recall. 
Uh, how long have we known about these connections? How important was that about Dr. Hack? And then, and then we'll certainly get into your papers and, and how important, uh, you know, these discoveries are. Sure. Uh, in fact, it's true. Gary Hack is the one who coined the term Mild Door Bridge in 1995. But these connections have been seen since uh, the early 50s, 1954 by Lazarus et al. And but the problem was is that it was lost in translation. I believe that paper was in German, so it had to be translated in order to identify or to see what these anatomists were looking at. But they didn't make the true connection of which muscles they were attached to. Uh, along comes Kahn et al., which was a French paper in 1992. And Kahn et al. did plastination, which we'll discuss a little bit later. But plastination is a, a very specific technique. It's a new technique for dissection. It's unlike the conventional measures that we utilize when you think about a prosector or a, dis a dissector of what they're doing. It's, it's turning the body into these plastic sheets. And Kahn et al. in 1992 identified these connections. Um, in, in fact, all of them, the not all of them, but the ones that attach to muscles from the rectus capitis posterior minor, which is a deep suboccipital muscle, the rectus capitis posterior major, which is another one in obliquus capitis inferior, and uh, Kahn et al., and these papers are in French, um, they weren't really discussing too much of the um, functionality of these structures, but instead they were doing a more comprehensive uh identification of the atlantoaxial and the atlanto-occipital interspaces, uh, but they were just pr presenting what they saw. And then Gary Hack in 1995 um, then identified the myodor bridge, or I should call it the superior myodor bridge now, because this is the one that's attached to the rectus capitis posterior minor, a very small muscle that attaches the first cervical vertebrae to the occiput, and it sends a slip of tissue between the the back of the skull, the occiput, and C1 and attaches to the dura mater. It is the thickest of them all, uh, meaning these other bridges that I was able to publish. But it went into more detail, and it actually gave it a name, the myodural bridge. So for the first time, we had this paper written in English, and it also had the name uh, that, that I mean, I'm, I'm glad Dr. Hack did not name it the Hack ligament. <laughs> um, it's very difficult for people to understand what this does. He called it the myodural bridge, and it's exactly what it's doing. So that's about. So we've been we've been looking at this area for quite a while, um, but it really hasn't had a breakthrough until that 1995 paper. And then there was a period where you know there was almost like a desert of you know information coming out. That after about 2005 or so, nobody else was really talking about this area until 2012 when the inferior myodor bridge, the paper that we worked on, um, uh, was resurfaced. And now it's there's if you go on PubMed and you search myodor bridge, you'll see an explosion of papers since that 2012 article. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, so like you say, a good 10, 12 years until anything else came out. Totally yeah. fascinating. I mean, and given the potential clinical ramifications of such connection, uh, it seems like uh, people would be really hot to, you know, to get on it and, and want to know everything they could about it. Yeah. And Absolutely. that, so that gets us to, to your paper then, uh, looking at mm -hmm. the rectus capitis posterior major and its connection to the uh, myodural bridge. Uh, so maybe you can tell us about this paper. Sure. And this is a paper, the first paper I, I've written, this was, um, while well, I was a first year medical student, I worked in the lab and I was writing this paper. And uh, basically, this is the work that I saw in Logan University's lab. And 
the rectus capitis posterior major and obliquus capitis inferior, both of those muscles are mentioned in this manuscript. Now, these muscles are, uh, they provide uh, ipsilateral or same side rotation of the head and neck. This is very different than the rectus capitis posterior minor because that muscle, the one that was published in 1995, that muscle does extension of the head and neck. And as we know, one of the, or as chiropractors know, is that the maximum amount of, or the most amount of motion in the cervical spine occurs at the C0, C1 uh, joint, and, and the most amount of rotation occurs at C1, C2. So it makes sense to have these muscles um, slip a slide of tissue or fascia between the vertebrae and attached to the dura mater. So this was a gross anatomical paper. I, I remember I presented it to one of the medical professors to even see if it could be published. And they said, yeah, this could probably be, be published. They wanted nothing to do with it. They said, I don't think you found anything because these are embalmed cadavers. And this is probably just an artifact that you're finding with the embalming fluid that's um, connecting with these like fatty tissue that's in the area. But I went ahead and I tried to publish it anyway. And they, they warned me. They said, try to publish it in like a low tier journal. But I went for the top. I went for spine. And uh, lo and behold, it got accepted. Um, and I took a kind of a big risk at that point. Uh, but basically what this paper just uh, signifies is that there is a anatomical connection uh, seen on gross dissection of the this muscle, the rectus capitis posterior major, and the obliquus capitis inferior. And I was able to show that this was a true connection. Well, I shouldn't say true connection, but a, a, a solid connection because I, I don't want to be too gruesome, but we decapitated an individual and we were holding these muscles with forceps. This image is in the actual article. We're holding the, these muscles with forceps and, and the muscles are not attached to any osseous structures whatsoever, but we're able to suspend the entire cervical spine just by this gross connection. And um, there was a certain part in this article where we also pulled on these muscles and we noticed that there was movement of the spinal cord around to the T1 area. So it showed that it was a very solid connection. And when you pulled on it with forceps, it wasn't detaching as easily as, let's say, an artifact as some of my um, professors were stating it was. So I was pretty convinced that this was a true anatomical connection at the time. Yeah, well, I, f I find it really fascinating, uh, that part about applying a little bit of traction on this rectus capitis posterior major, and then getting movement as you describe it in the paper, all the way down through the spinal root level of the first thoracic vertebra. So was, I'm curious, was that consistent amongst all of the specimens? Yeah, we tried it on about, I would say, you know, seven or eight of them. And we were noticing that this movement did exist. And the way that we did this was kind of unique at the time. We stuck uh, just map pins, like regular pins, into the dura mater, and we did them at each vertebral level. And I would, you know, have my uh, research assistant pull on the rectus capitis posterior major. Again, when it was not attached to any uh, osseous structures. So it's a little bit of, of, of difference there. I, I think that if the muscles actually attached to the osseous structures, you wouldn't see that amount of gross movement down to T1, but we would notice that the pins all the way down to T1 were moving. Um, at that point, I don't think we, I, we have video evidence of it, uh, but we weren't able to uh, upload that video at the time of, that this publication took place. But yeah, this was fairly consistent among all the, uh, as long as we provided the, the same dissection, meaning a laminectomy from C3 down 
and um, and then pulled on the structure. Yeah, we saw this motion of the dura mater all the way down to T1. Hmm. That, yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, and, you know, as we go through, there's obviously a lot of anatomical, biomechanical aspects that we'll be talking about, but also, you know, clinical aspects as well. And so I just want to give listeners the sense that uh, some of this, I'm um, you know, maybe not sure exactly what all the clinical significance is. And some of it, I think we're, we're probably, you know, pretty sure, um, you know, but there's speculation for sure. But as a practitioner, I can't help but think of all the headaches and, you know, uh, implications it has for cerebral spinal fluid flow, uh, and so on and so forth. So as we go through, yeah, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, how, how this would play out. I do want to follow up just to make sure I get this right. And for the listeners as well. So Dr. Hack does this study, rectus capitis posterior minor, uh, and that muscle is, uh, well involved in, uh, flexion of the head upon the neck. Uh, and so that muscle seems to be helping put dural tension, if you will, in flexion extension. But, what you found, which is different, is that this rectus capitis posterior major, a bigger muscle involved in rotation of the head and neck, is now also involved in the, in the myodural bridge and also putting tension on the cord, presumably more in rotation. And uh, so that, that's just fascinating. So now, basically, any movement of the head and neck, it seems... Uh, would be possibly putting tension on the cord and or taking it off the cord, I imagine, as well, in the opposite. Um, did I get that right? <laughs> <laughs> There's one one correction I would like to make. The, okay. The rectus capus posterior minor is mainly an extender of okay. the head and neck. It might have been, I think you might have misspoken, it's a flexor. And the reason why that's important is because later on when we talk about the most recent study with the PAO membrane, uh, that that I believe is what it's doing. It's providing um, a, a little bit of um, tension on the dura mater uh, during flexion. So its extension is the main action of of both the rectus capitis posterior minor, which is Gary Hack's finding in ninety five. Uh, the extension of the neck, or looking up, is also going to be a major action of the rectus capitis posterior major. But yes, you're correct that the rectus capitis posterior major, the way that the angle, it's like at an oblique angle and it connects to the occiput or the back of the skull. This also does ipsilateral rotation and the uh, obliquus capitis inferior. Now this muscle is also reported in this 2012 study that I, I published. It's it goes from the spinous process of C2 to the transverse process of C1. So it doesn't have a connection to the back of the skull, but it does work with rotation. And both the major and the obliquus capitis inferior, both of these muscles um, do provide the action of rotation of the head and neck. And if you can imagine that if you have the spinal cord inside of these vertebrae, and if you rotate your head and neck, if there's a jacket surrounding the spinal cord, it'll twist or wring this jacket, or kind of like a glove. If I had a glove, a, a latex glove around my finger, and I twist around that glove, it's going to wring and it's going to crinkle it or enfold. And so what these muscles are doing simultaneously is as they're contracting, they're pulling on the dura or the jacket so that it remains in its, it, it keeps its integrity. 
And yes, you're right that this becomes very important because inside of this jacket is a fluid. So if you are wringing or twisting this uh, structure, you're going to impede cerebrospinal fluid. And that can have some clinical effects if, 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 or, or decrease the clearance rate of the fluid leaving the brain. So that is correct. But it also provides a uh, tension on this dura. And that's when you start to get into the clinical applications of this. What happens if you have failure of these muscles? What happens if you have hypertrophy of these muscles? Or what if you have a variation of these muscles where you have an accessory muscle? This can all cause clinical manifestations in a patient's upper cervical spine. Hmm. So, so for the most part, you got it correct. Yes. <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate you uh, you going through all of that. It's uh, sure. it, it's good to hear it from you. And uh, yeah, I guess I was thinking about the membrane in terms of the flexion. So thank oh. thanks for pointing yeah. that that part out. Um, before we get into the uh, into the other papers, I just you know I jotted down some thoughts about you know as a just a practicing chiropractor, what I think of when I think of the upper cervical spine clinically, and I think of, you know, headaches, neck pain, that sort of thing. But then I think more mechanistically in terms of cervical nerve impingement, like maybe greater occipital nerve uh, causing headaches. I might think of myofascial trigger points and referred pain uh, to the head and, you know, other parts of the neck. I think of the trigeminal cervical nucleus that pain portion of the trigeminal nerve that supplies the face, uh, jaw, etc. cetera. Um, and I think of that in the upper cervical spine. And, and I also sometimes think of vertebral artery involvement. Mm -hmm. um, are, are these all things that are also related to the C1, C2, and have anything to do with the myodural bridge in your estimation or, or are they just sort of independent other, you know, maybe interesting clinical things? No, absolutely. I think, um, to take each, uh, let's, we'll start, you mentioned greater occipital nerve involvement and in some of the studies that I provided, I've noticed that the C2 nerve, which is the greater occipital nerve, which is pure sensory, um, it pierces through this myodor bridge in order to get to its target tissue. In fact, what it's doing, it's piercing through this um, this membrane, and it, it kind of wraps around that obliquus capitis inferior muscle. And this is, uh, in 2010, we published a study prior to the myodor bridge about how the obliquus capitis inferior is, is, a, is a point that can compress this nerve, and we can see it with ultrasound. Now, the greater occipital nerve has other areas of anatomy that it has to escape, quote-unquote. Uh, one of them is going to be the trapezial sling, but this nerve rides up the back of the head and could cause this uh, pain pattern or this uh, occipital pain pattern. So, anywhere of these entrapment sites um, that the greater occipital or any, any area of this anatomy that the greater occipital nerve is piercing through or wrapping around uh, can lead to this posterior occipital pain. And just one more time to mention a myodural bridge is one, um, the inferior myodural bridge, I can call it now. Inferior myodural bridge is one. The obliquus capus inferior, if it's hypertrophied or if there's some sort of adhesions in that area that can cause this pain pattern, as well as the trapezial sling, which is formed by the trapezius and the splenius capitis. So yes, these have overlapping. So it's, I, it's really important for a clinician to identify the etiology of the entrapment site of the oblique, uh, greater occipital nerve, uh, yeah, greater occipital nerve. 
The myofascial trigger point uh, referred pain pattern is also very important because, again, if these muscles are hypertrophied or if there is even atrophy of these muscles with fatty infiltration, what that can do is it can provide tension, excessive tension on these myodural bridge structures. And what that will do is it'll pull on the dura more so than it normally would. And this area of dura mater, meaning this posterior sleeve of the dura mater, is uh, innervated by the ophthalmic branch of trigeminal nerve. So this can cause a frontal head pain pattern. And the example I always give to my medical students is that if you're laying on your stomach while you're sleeping all night, that's the equivalent of you pressing your face against a wall for eight hours. And one side of these muscles are going to get, you know, uh, not hypertrophied, but they're going to tense up and you might have these trigger points in those muscles, and this will cause excessive tension of these fascial components that are binding to the dura mater. And if you're pulling on this dura mater, the pain pattern uh, can resemble a frontal headache. So a lot of patients may be referring to the front of the head and they're saying, I have a headache here, doc, and they're pointing to the front of the head, but it could be coming from these tight occipital muscles or suboccipital muscles. And this is, evidence is proven by uh, some of these Botox studies that, you know, they inject Botox, they do a shotgun approach at this moment, where they inject Botox into the muscles of the, of the back of the neck. And it, in some cases, it alleviates these head and pains and i i believe that um maybe if they took more of a sniper approach instead it would it would be a better um treatment modality and then you also mentioned the vertebral artery uh, also seen this pierce through the myodural bridge the um the vertebral artery is very interesting because there is another paper in the 1960s that said that this is an ampulloglomerular apparatus in this area now what the heck does that mean it's basically a baroreceptor or pressure receptor in this area bio, within the myodural bridge area. And it's measuring the pressure of the, of the, of the um, blood going, blood pressure going up into these vertebral arteries. And it makes sense from a design standpoint or from an evolution standpoint. Uh, we have these pressure receptors not only at the carotid bifurcation, which is the arteries in the front of the neck. We have a pressure receptor around the aorta, which is the blood supply to the rest of the body. And now there's this ignored pressure receptor or putative pressure receptor at these vertebral arteries in this area bound by the myodural bridge, which I believe is measuring the pressure going up through the vertebral arteries into the, which by the way, both vertebral arteries communicate with each other, form the basal artery, which supplies the brainstem. So it makes it makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint why we would have them or these pressure receptors and chemoreceptors in these areas of anatomy. And since the vertebral artery is piercing through this tissue, uh, one of the major things is migraines that patients uh, complain of. If you have a spasm of the vertebral artery, this can lead to a migraine headache. So. It could be that if you have any sort of myofascial trigger points in this area leading to um, a spasm of the vertebral artery, possibly this could lead to migraine headaches. And I'm saying big possibility. I, it's, it's not been proven at all yet, but it's something that since it's in this vicinity, uh, it, it, it most likely plays a role. Hmm. Wow, that's there's a lot to think about there. Uh, I, I wasn't aware about the uh, the pressure receptors, uh, but it makes sense that you know it's a big location. I mean, honestly, this whole area is a big location, right? I mean, it's uh, if you just think about the upper cervical anatomy, not even necessarily considering the myodural bridge, but now that we're talking about all of this, I mean, 
is it, you know, the head is a platform for all these sensory things that are going on. And, and it makes sense to have this transitional area that's in hyper control over everything, uh, the way it moves, yeah. the way it regulates. Uh, and so it, it just, it makes sense, I suppose. And uh, I, not having heard that before, it just gives me something else to think about yeah, well, <laughs> for I mean, this area. There's fluids leaving, there's fluids coming in. And remember, I always refer to it as a penthouse, meaning the brain. We have to maintain mean arterial pressure there. We have to maintain glucose supply to the, to the neurons there to, to uh, maintain you know, survival. So it does make sense that in this very small area that there has to be pressure receptors, chemoreceptors, CSF control. In fact, all these nerves, meaning the things that are regulating, the nerves that are regulating, cranial nerve 9 and 10 that regulate... Um, the chemoreceptors and baroreceptors, cranial nerve 9 and 10 is adjacent to the cranial nerves and cervical nerves that are supplying these muscles or innervating these muscles, which is cranial nerve 11 and C1. So it's it's very complex. I think that we really don't understand this area um, at all. And I, I was hoping that this, uh, pun intended, bridge the understanding of the back of the neck. We're always so focused on the anterior triangle of the neck, the posterior triangle of the neck, which is in the front of the neck, but nobody ever taps into this back aspect. And since the vertebral artery is so important for brainstem, and that's where the reticular activating system is and tegmentum is, which allows for consciousness, it we have to have some sort of regulatory system for this region of anatomy. And we also need to maintain this uh, CSF clearance in this area as well. So it's true. Yeah, I think that there's a lot going on here. And we just kind of uh, scratch the surface by identifying this mild door bridge complex. Well, I like the way you think, Dr. Scully. I, uh, so we need to... <laughs> We need to carry on this for many, many more hours, but uh, <laughs> for this podcast, we'll, we'll, we'll try to keep it a little briefer. Um, yes. But all right. So the next uh, paper that I wanted to get into was uh, histological analysis of the rectus capitis posterior majors myodural bridge. So we're going to get a little uh, closer into the anatomy, uh, zooming in a little bit more. Could you tell us about this paper and its significance? Yeah. So the, as I stated, the first paper was based on the gross anatomical findings and then the histological findings is the next stage. In other words, everybody was saying, you know, they were saying this is not showing that this is a true anatomical connection. So in order to identify a true anatomical connection, you need histology studies. And I said to myself, I'll do you one better. I'll also do an immunohistochemical staining, which is basically tagging neurons in this area. Cause if I can show that it's a true anatomical connection and then show that there's innervation in this area, it's, it's, kind of supporting the finding or the understanding that this is not only a true anatomical connection, but it also serves some sort of function. And this study was the first one to show that this is a true anatomical connection. And um, so we looked at it under microscopy, a pathologist was able to identify it under microscopy, as well as tag these neurons that lit up like a Christmas tree in within the myodural bridge itself. So that was the main purpose of this manuscript. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, I want to uh, dive in a little bit about um, what what the implications of this are. So, so you found that indeed there is the the myodural bridge on histological analysis, and and now you found some uh, innervation there. You found uh, proprioceptive fibers inside of the myodural bridge, and. And I think you were saying before that may not exactly be proprioceptive fibers. What what do you uh, what do you make out of those neurological fibers? 
factor. So the neurological fiber is that the issue that we have in pathology is that uh, we don't have a specific tag to identify if this is a motor neuron, sensory, proprioceptive. So there's not a, a specific immunohistochemical stain that we can utilize in order to identify this as proprioceptive, but we're able to support that it is innervated. There is a there is nerve endings in this area, and we, we're able to trace it from not only the muscle all the way down to dura following the bridge. So the, we sus suspect that these are proprioceptive because we have to monitor the dural tension in this area based on our hypothesis of what the functionality is of this uh, tissue. So it's, um, I can certainly say that there's neurons here. I can't certainly state that there are proprioceptive neurons, but it's the only one that truly makes sense in my mind at this stage until we can find a new uh, way of testing these, the innervation in this region. Yeah, no, I, w I would 100% agree. I mean, the muscle itself is getting, you know, it, its supply, uh, extrafusal, intrafusal fibers. It's it's not that, it's something else, right? Sure. And so, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's sensory in some nature, it seems, uh, as opposed to, to motor. I, I suppose yes, I there could be motor, like to some fascial structures. I, I don't know, but uh, possibly, it's, possibly, yeah. It seems like it would be sensory. Yeah. So that that gets me to uh, my next point, which is, you know, and something that I is dear to my heart and and my research, and that is the function of these suboccipital muscles in terms of proprioception. And so now I'm thinking, okay, these four suboccipital muscles have some of the highest spindle density. In fact, I'm not aware of any other muscle in the body that has as high of spindle density as these four at the base of the skull connecting to the spine. And, you know, they, it, it would seem if you look at them, you know, okay, yeah, they're involved in head and neck rotation, uh, extension, um, lateral flexion, but what about, uh, this, you know, more recent concept of what the muscles probably are doing even more so than moving head and neck is to function as, uh, proprioceptors. And so then I'm, you know, then I start to think, okay, well, uh, these are providing for accurate regulation of head movement, coordination, probably involved in eye movements, uh, and now we throw in these proprioceptive fibers as a part of the myodural bridge. Well, we'll say they're proprioceptive. Maybe they're not, but they're sensory of some nature. It seems to be. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then, then I start thinking, well, are, so are these fibers that you discovered essentially, are they, are they involved in this whole complex neurology of moving head and neck and, and, tugging on the cord i mean or again is it sort of <laughs> independent yeah. you know that's where my head is now because you've blown my mind you know that we've got all of this anatomy there and so now i have to rethink you know the way uh the way that i think about mm -hmm. um, these muscles and and it's not just the muscles but maybe it's a bigger picture concept of they're moving they're sensing you know, and then the myodural bridge is sensing. That's correct. Yes. I, I agree with you 100%. And, and yeah, you have to pan out. You can't have this, this low resolution understanding of the area and just say these muscles are pulling on dura and that's it. 
I think that there's a bigger picture to all of this. And, um, you know, this is also supported by certain studies with this area of the brain called interstitial nucleus of Kajal. And where they stimulate that, you'll see eye tracking movements with these muscles contracting. So there might be a higher order uh, regulation in this area as well in, in, in the cortex and in the brainstem. So, yeah, but your guess is just as good as mine at this level. <laughs> we're, we're still just, uh, we're at the infantile stages of learning about uh, what these structures are doing. Yeah, and then throw in some CSF fluid, yeah. you know, motion. And wow, I mean, there's a ton of stuff to be thinking about now. Uh, and yeah. so I appreciate that you've blown my mind. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I need to, uh, yeah. Uh, it will take a while for it to uh, calm down, I'm sure. <laughs> but let's let's get into the next couple because we got we've got more stuff to talk about here. Sure. Uh, so the next paper uh, is called the investigation of my uh, meningeal myovertebral structures uh, within the upper cervical epidural space, a sheet plastination study with clinical implications. So I know a lot of people. Uh, are probably thinking, you know, if they're a chiropractor or even medical doctor, they may be thinking, I've heard of plastination. Uh, but for those people who have never heard of it before, uh, maybe a patient or even those just with less familiarity, can you describe first what plastination is uh, and then walk us through this study? Yeah, absolutely. Plastination is a fantastic approach to dissection nowadays. Um, you might have seen plastinated specimens in in museums such as Body Worlds, Bodies the Exhibition. It's where the we infuse basically this polymer. It's called E12 polymer. There's also P45 polymer, but these numbers mean nothing. It's just a it's a plastic that we're able to infuse into the cells. And the way that we do this, and this is important because we need to discuss um, the importance of this study, is what we do is we dehydrate the body. So we perform a dissection, we dehydrate the body, and we infuse the cells with acetone, which is an organic solvent, meaning it's wetter than water. This process of dehydrating the body will shrink tissues. And this becomes very important when you're trying to understand these fascial layers, because under conventional measures, using um, regular embalming fluid or even fluids, like water, for instance, what we'll end up seeing is that all the tissue is swollen, so you cannot see the different fascial membranes or layers. But by dehydrating it using this organic solvent, uh, acetone, what we do is we shrink the tissues and then we place this body um, or this dissection that is now has this acetone-infused cells into a uh, vacuum chamber. And we fill the vacuum chamber with whatever plastic of choice you want. In our case, we used E12 plastination. And what we do is we use a vacuum to suck out the acetone. And by laws of physics, something has to replace that. And what replaces it is this clear plastic solution, uh, the E12 polymer. And what you end up with is a perfectly preserved um, uh, you know, body or dissection. And it's preserved forever, essentially, because it's made out of plastic at this point. So it maintains its structural integrity, and you can visualize all these anatomical structures inside you, uh, which is why we were able to pro provide this study. Um, and you can even do some fancy things with this. And by the way, I have to say that Von Hagens is the individual who, uh, the, the individual who created Body Worlds. He's the one who perfected the science in the 70s. And this is why we're able to see all these new structures in the, in the human body nowadays. It's a new method of dissection. So what we did was we got a little creative and we sliced up the body kind of like salami slices and then plastinated it. And we put it under a light, bo uh, a light box 
and we look at it under microscopy, and we saw that these structures had a much more organized presentation than what we were anticipating. So what became just little bridges that went from muscle to dura, we now see that these bridges have guidelines or guide wires, meaning from vertebrae, and they, they produce this very highly organized pattern of sheets of fascia, and then they connect into dura. So it's much more, um, uh, it, it was from a functionality or, or a structural design, much more predictive than we were ever anticipating. And that's what this study was um, providing, all this information. So it's a pretty dense study. Uh, if you're an anatomist, you might appreciate it. And I should have thrown the word myodural bridge in there somewhere, but I didn't. I should have done that in retrospect. But basically, that's what this is showing, is that these are not just myodural bridges, but they're myovertebral dural bridges. That's what that meningeal myovertebral structures represents. It's, it's a coalesce. Uh, we're coalescing fascia, periosteum, and dura together. Hmm. So, can you tell us about uh, differences uh, between the various ligaments? I remember in chiropractic school, you know, we talked about dentate ligaments, for example, uh, and upper cervical practitioners would talk about dentate ligaments. Uh, what... What's, what's their role compared to the role of these meningeal vertebral ligaments, do you think? Yeah, they're analogous, in fact. So these dentate ligaments, for the uh, listeners that are, maybe need a little refresh course, it's made out of pia mater, which is just a layer of meninges. And this is going to be intradural. So remember, we have the dura mater, which is the jacket. So outside of the jacket are going to be these structures that we're discussing today, the myodural bridge, vertebral dural ligaments, so on and so forth. Inside of the jacket, meaning holding, it's intimate with the spinal cord itself, is this very delicate uh, pia mater, which means delicate mother. It's basically just this very delicate tissue. And what it does is it pervades, it provides a um, uh, it, it limits the side-to-side -side sway of the spinal cord. And so it attaches the spinal cord to the inside of the dura mater. On the outside of the dura mater, we have the myovertebral ligaments, or however you want to call it, the myodural bridge, meningeal vertebral ligaments. These ligaments are on the outside of the spinal cord. So they are connected, but it's not going to be, uh, they're separated by dura mater. So one is extradural, one is uh, subdural. And so they play a role. Now, pia mater, the dentate ligaments, I'm glad you brought this up. The dent of these pia mater, um, or I should say dentate ligaments, they do assist with production of CSF. So if you can imagine that if I'm pulling on the dura mater from the outside using the myodural bridge, and I'm pulling on the dura mater, what can occur is that it's going to therefore pull the dura mater outwards pull on the dentate ligaments, pull on the spinal cord, and this may actually assist in the production of CSF. So this is a, um, you have to have that, once again, the big picture of what's going on inside the dura as well as on the outside. Hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, when I was thinking about this, of trying to come up with various questions, one of, one of the ones that came to me was with the myodural bridge. So we've got muscle that is contributing here. So it seems to me that we might have both passive means of helping to regulate the tension on this uh, spinal cord structure. And now uh, with your documentation, we also have the myodural bridge or the meningeal vertebral ligaments, if you will, uh, that may represent 
we'll say, a more active means through mm-hmm. cross-bridging, muscular cross-bridging to uh, help yeah. to control spinal cord motion. Is that, would that be that's fair? That's a very good way to put it. Yes. And, and, yeah, that's exactly what we're, we're seeing is going on. And, and the fact that it's formed by these very complex tissues, it's not just a ligament or a ligamentous type of tissue. Periosteum has pain fibers in it, which make up the vertebral dural ligaments. The fascia has, you know, these muscles are embedded with Golgi tendon organs and so on and so forth. So we have a very complex um, extradural structure monitoring the outside of the spinal cord. And then we also have the PIA monitor, which is also a very specialized, highly specialized sub-tissue that is monitoring the spinal cord on the inside, and they're all connected together. So there's this, the, basically, the, the deep suboccipital musculature is uh, very important with the homeostasis of the inside of the spinal cord and what's going on in there. And it's direct or indirectly connected to the actual spinal cord itself. Yeah. Instead of just the dura. Yeah, and and it opens up now the possibility. So my mind then goes to okay, we've got, you know, getting back to let's say Punjabi's model of mm-hmm. you know stability. I'm thinking okay, there's active elements, there's passive elements, and then you've got control elements. Mm-hmm. And so now we've got all three players right in this exactly. region, right when it comes to the cord itself. So Absolutely. and that that makes you know once you have an active element that you have some willful degree of control, then to me it it opens up the possibility of various explanations for for treatment, you know, yes. that we could use you know, if, if you're a surgeon, I'm sure surgery is what you'd go for. If you're a chiropractor, you're going to adjust people and do myofascial work, etc. cetera. Uh, maybe introduce nutrition if you think that might have an impact. Exercise, mm-hmm. all, all these different things that now, you know, are sort, sort of opening up the possibilities. And, and I know that's really broad spectrum. And, you know, there's probably a ton of work that needs to be done to document these things. But it does open up that for the possibility. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. So could you describe um, your understanding of the biomechanical importance of these structures then during contraction of the deep suboccipital? So we talked about the rectus capitis posterior minor and major extension. We've got uh, this fascial bridge pulling spinal dura, uh, preventing dural unfolding. I mean, there's so much going on here mechanically. Uh, like I said, I, I'm just having uh, issues with trying to understand all of the clinical importance here. But um, maybe just uh, in your mind, what are what are some of the key biomechanical things that we should be thinking about? Yeah, I, I, I see. I think that what we need to understand is when we look at each individual muscle alone, uh, it's easy to understand. But when you look at this from pa- a panned out view, uh, we didn't even mention a nuchal bridge yet, which is the nuchal ligament, which is where all the upper, you know, the trapezius is attached to. This also is connected to the, <laughs> the dura mater as well, uh, which is in the latest paper that we, we provided, and as well as the occiput. So it's, it's very, it's kind of a difficult concept to understand when you look at each one individually. But it's important to also understand that it's to have one of these muscles attaching to dura uh, from our understanding in like 1995 up to 2012, it wouldn't make sense to have one small muscle, meaning the rectus capus posterior minor, be the only one that influences this, this dural tension. So if, if I can kind of make a segue into the next chapter, if you will, 
of what we're talking about is that all these muscles, meaning rectus capus posterior major, obliquus capus inferior, rectus capus posterior minor, and all the muscles attached to the nuchal ligament, they summate these forces that are applied to these muscles, these tensile forces, they will be projected onto the back of the dura mater in this cranial cervical junction. Not so much on the dura mater uh, exactly, but on the on this membrane that lines the back of the dura. And it's the job of this membrane, which is the most latest paper, the PAO membrane, and it summates the forces is what I believe. So it summates the forces to prevent any one of these structures to have full um, effect on the dural tension and CSF flow. So I think that we have to step away from looking at them as individual structures and look at it as more of a summation of the forces based on upper extremity movement, as well as head and neck rotation and extension, because the head is much more complicated than just flexion extension. Uh, we can have flexion and rotation simultaneously, but we need to summate those forces in order to alleviate or to leave the dura mater patent in that area so CSF can clear. Because if you don't clear CSF, then you're going to drop down in glucose, drop mean arterial pressure. You're going to have all sorts of consequences. So I think that's the major take-home point is that learn them individually first and then try to big, bring the whole big picture together. So that's how I will. Um, that's how I, I try to view all of this at this point. Well, I think that's a great segue. So let's get into that uh, last paper that we'll talk about today, and that is the posterior atlanto-occipital membrane, the anchor for the myodural bridge and meningeal vertebral structures. And this just came out in uh, the journal Curious. Uh, so if you could uh, guide us through this paper, that'd be great. Sure, I'll bring you through. So basically what this is, is that we wanted to focus on the PAO membrane. The PAO membrane is a membrane that uh, traditionally is described as going from the occiput to C1. Now, this membrane is very different from the ligamentum flava, which is this yellow ligament that goes from lamina to lamina all the way up. Um, if you read the, the 2015 paper, we showed how the ligamentum flava in the C1, C2 is very different from the other ones, but that's beyond this, the scope of this conversation. This PAO membrane um, what we found is that it's not actually attaching, uh, it is attaching to C1 on its lateral borders, but the median raphe or the median stripe of this membrane doesn't attach the atlas at all. In fact, what it does is it merges with the dura mater uh, at the level of the atlas axis, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, occipital uh, and atlas between C1 and C0. It merges with the dura and it it fuses with the dura, the posterior sleeve of the dura, and it communicates with, all the way down to C3. And what this allows for is not only to thicken the dura at this level, on um, the plastination, we showed that it was about five millimeters thick, but remember, plastination shrinks tissues. So I'm estimating it's going to be around 10 millimeters or so. So in other words, the dura mater at this area is very thick, and it's aided by the PAO membrane. And all of these bridging connective tissues as well as the ligamentous tissues that are extending from the vertebrae, they are all inserting into this PAO membrane. So although we've been calling it the myodural bridge, it's actually a myomembranous bridge. And then that, that PAO membrane is what is, I, I'm going to use the term again, summating the forces of all these, all these muscles. And it's allowing for that to translate onto the posterior aspect of the dura. This also participates in the thickening of the posterior aspect of the dura, which also aids in the, uh, it provides, it prevents enfolding or ringing of the dura at its upper cervical uh, occipital junction. So 
that's basically what this paper is um, supporting. And it's also highly organizing all of this, this entire region. So I call the region the su uh, superior attachments and ligamentous insertions. That's where all these, that's the region of anatomy. And you could call the functional aspect of it the myodorbridge complex. But it shows and it confirms, once again, the findings of 2015 of how organized the system is. And it should be predictable whether you, you're trying to aim to dissect it or if you're using plastination. Uh, and it also shows the access points of where these mild dural bridges are entering into the vertebral canal. So that was the main purpose of this uh, study. Awesome. Well, I tell you, the one thing that really shocked me as you're talking was that you had estimated the, this um, membrane to be about one centimeter thick. That that's incredible. Yeah, seven to, to point. Uh, I would say seven millimeters to one centimeter thick at the level of C zero C one. Once you get down to C three, it, it drops in half, and then from there, from that point, distal, it, uh, meaning uh, inferiorly or caudally, it's going to be um, just plain dura. So okay. the dura mater is comprised of many different sub tissue types, meaning elastin, uh, PO membrane, fascia, periosteum, all between C zero and C three. Okay, so we've got these suboccipital muscles, and I'm thinking about the muscles of the abdomen. I'm trying to, I'm going to try to make a, a correlation here or a relationship. In the abdomen, we've got also four muscles: uh, the obliques, the two obliques, the uh, rectus abdominis, and the transversus abdominis, and they all connect to a common sheath, and that common sheath. Uh, helps to have a common vector for flexion of the abdomen. Is, th is this similar, do you think, as to what's going on with the four suboccipital muscles that they all are tugging on the same membrane dural complex? Yeah, exactly. That's a really good analogy. That's exactly what it's, I, 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 that's what I presume it's how it's acting. Hmm. Uh, that they're working in sync with each other and it's forming a system. Hmm. The only difference is that since we have different sub-tissue types and different fluids and stuff, it's more of an, I hate to say it, it's an organ system because we, we are comprising muscle, nervous tissue. Uh, I believe that there's vascular involved. We have a, a, a quite a sophisticated system in this region of anatomy. Yes. Okay. But from a functional component, yes, I, I agree with you 100%. Hmm. Okay, so one thing that I, I'd like to also have you go through, because I'm, I'm trying to image this in my head about, okay, we've got this membrane, it's, it's uh, got a connection to the dura, but I'm having difficulties imagining how this works in terms of cerebrospinal fluid flow. Um, so for instance, you know, these, these muscles are pulling, uh, they're, they're applying some sort of tension to the dura matter. Can you, can you walk us through, um, how that relates to cerebrospinal fluid? I mean, is it, yeah. you know, when we are, do we have to flex our, uh, head and neck, uh, rotate? I mean, do, what do these motions correspond to? when it comes to the suboccipitals and fluid flow? Yeah, so what's, what started me thinking about this was that whether you put a patient laying down in an MRI unit or if they're standing up, the CSF fluid rate is consistent. It stays the same flow rate, um, meaning out through the, the cer cranial cervical junction 
or that that junction. So there has to be something going on here. What is controlling this fluid from uh, leaving? And I believe that there it's not just about head and neck movement and upper extremity movement if you include the uh, the nuchal bridge, but also that there's a specific tension applied to these muscles that we don't notice on a day-to-day basis that is being applied to these muscles to allow for CSF clearance. So whether these muscles tighten up a little bit that you won't notice, or if they relax, this will uh, allow for this the dura mater to, to open in patency or to be relaxed more so. And th- what that does is it allows for that CSF on the outside or of the spinal cord to leave this uh, disjunction at the cerebrospinal junction. Um, what supports this hypothesis is if you think about a patient who has meningitis, for instance, they have ex- too much protein or exogenous protein within the CSF. And what this does is it causes an increase in oncotic pressure. And what these patients complain about is head neck stiffness. And what I believe is happening here, and this you can bridge this into a more you know day to day basis, is if you have too much hydrostatic pressure of CSF or too much oncotic pressure of CSF in this region of anatomy, this will signal these neurons that we have yet to discover at this point to warn the brain, hey, you have too much CSF in this area and these muscles will contract. So whether it's oncotic pressure due to proteins or if it's hydrostatic pressure, um, you can see this in the exaggerated states. And again, I'll use the example of meningitis. And of course, this has to do with dural irritation. I know, understand that. Uh, for the listeners that are saying it has to do with irritation, but also I believe the oncotic pressure or hydrostatic pressure for the startling forces can also play a role in this. So I think that it's not just about act, uh, um, you know active head and neck rotation, but also it's just in the background as a, as a homeostat uh, like a homeostasis process. Um, which and it's supported by not only what we see on on functional MRI with CSF flow, but also with uh, disease processes such as um, uh, meningitis. Okay, I hope that clears up. I don't yeah, know. I, I think so. Um, I still want to dive in just a little bit deeper, if you don't mind. So let's just take a common situation uh, that you know cases people present to chiropractors with. Uh, so let's say uh, suboccipital pain. Okay. And so they might come in and they have hypertonicity of the suboccipital muscles. So tightness of their uh, back neck muscles. And um, so, you know, the, the practitioner might think, okay, let's do some trigger point work. Let's, you know, do some exercise, some adjusting. Uh, in in that case, if if there is some extra tension, let's say, in these muscles, how would that translate to the possibility of CSF flow? Would would it restrict flow because it's uh, tugging on this dural complex or would it increase flow? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, how yeah. does that, and is there a certain amount of pressure that's required to, you know, open things up or close things down, do you think? I think these are good questions. And I'm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's bad to say. I just don't know. I don't know if um, you know what the pressure amounts are. We're still just starting on the CSF discussion, and we're actually trying to figure out a way to stimulate these muscles under MRI to see what type of flow there is. But I do, I do to answer the first half of the question, which is, you know, how does release techniques can um, uh, provide relief in this area? I don't think that under normal circumstances that we have that much of an impediment of CSF um, clearance. 
However, I think over chronic states, if we have a situation where these muscles are atrophied or if there's injury to these muscles or even something like a, a thickened nuchal ligament, for instance, which we see in Down syndrome patients, maybe, just maybe, this will decrease the CSF flow rate that is, or clearance rate, I should say, through this area of anatomy. And what we might end up having is an accumulation of byproducts in the end. So I don't want to go as far as to say and a chiropractic adjustment would, uh, um, would you know, I'm, what I'm trying to get to is that if we increase the amount of beta amyloid proteins in the brain, this could be a problem. Uh, and, and I believe that this is where we're leading to. But I don't want to go as far as to say that if we provide a patient with a chiropractic adjustment, that what you're doing is that you are, um, you know, solving the issue with Alzheimer's. I don't want to get to that level. But I do think that it does alleviate dural tension, however, and that's why upper cervical adjustments and, and upper cervical work is uh, very beneficial to certain patients who have these frontal headaches, because if you recall, that area of anatomy is innervated by trigeminal nerve or even greater occipital nerve headaches, type headaches. So when it comes to CSF flow, it's a very new topic, and we're just scratching the surface at this point. And until we get more evidence uh, anatomical and physiological evidence of it. Uh, that's why I, I'm hesitant to state exactly what's happening here. It's going to cause, uh, we're working on biomechanic, uh, biochemical staining of these muscles in uninvolved tissue at the moment to figure out what is that actually going on with aging of tissue in this region hmm. and then how we can reproduce this in animal studies and then bring it, bridge it into the clinical world. Yeah, very so, nice. Very nice. Subject, yeah. We'll be uh, following closely. Uh, those findings, that's great. Uh, now, you had mentioned the uh, fatty infiltration as a possibility of these muscles, and I'm pretty keenly aware of fatty infiltration, for example, of uh, multifidus in the lumbar spine, and that's yeah. been related to things like back pain. But now that you mentioned that, I, you know, it makes sense that they would happen in these suboccipital muscles, but I, I don't, don't recall seeing any studies, uh, MRI or, or otherwise, um, but I'm sure it has to happen. Do you know of any papers that have documented that? We just published a paper. It got accepted two days ago into medical hypothesis. And uh, we did find out in whiplash cases, um, they've seen fatty infiltration into some of these muscles. Okay. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's scarce. But remember, this area is understudied. So I think that low back pain is, is studied a lot more so than these upper cervical um, muscles. Um, but uh, yeah, I believe we cited, but I, I can send you those afterwards, and we, you can take a look at it. Yeah, yeah, I'd be I'd be curious to, yeah. to to see. You know, it's just not something I've actually looked for. Uh, I imagine right. that there was at least something out there, but I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure. So I just wanted mm -hmm. to ask you about that. So I also wanted to ask about some other, you know, clinical possibilities. We'll say. Uh, that may happen with dysfunction of this area, this PAOM, uh, posterior atlanto-occipital membrane. And uh, let's have maybe some fun uh, and uh, you know talk about some <laughs> of the pathophysiologic findings or neurological complications that could arise from uh, this area. And you you had mentioned in in this paper about surgical release of the myodural bridge. Um, and so I just want to get your thoughts and you'd already, you know, just in our discussion here in the last few minutes talked about, uh, you know, some of the more conservative measures, chiropractic adjustments, soft tissue work exercise, but I wanted to get your sense as to, you know, are, are there, 
uh, ways in, in your mind that may be best to address these types of possible dysfunctions that occur here and, uh, you know, for lack of a better way to say, restore appropriate function. Uh, Does that make sense, even the question? Yeah, Yeah, no, I think I know what you're getting at. Yeah, I I think... um, I think it's a spectrum, you know, are we talking about a patient who had surgical, some sort of surgery in this area, like in a Chiari malformation, and they have adhesions in this region? I, I yeah, can't imagine yeah, the detrimental gotcha. yeah, sequelae that can occur from that. Um, in fact, some of these tissues are being cut straight through in surgery, hmm. which we might be seeing as primitive later on, you know, like, why would you cut these dural bridges? Um, cause they're, they're assisting with, uh, we have to look at follow-up studies and see what happens to these patients. But then there's the patients who's like the everyday patient who, in a chiropractic office that may come in with these head and neck pain syndromes that could just be due to either trigger points, as you've been stating, or, um, maybe they're sleeping on their stomach and these muscles are, are very tight or even hypertrophied on one side. Um, or even as in the case with I uh, with the fatty infiltration, uh, if we find if I show you that paper later with whiplash cases, so I think that it depending on the patient that is presented in front of you, that's going to dictate uh, what type of treatment modality would best be suited for that patient. Um, and so I, I don't know. I think that at the very least, um, even activating these muscles or finding a method on how to activating these muscles, especially with this whole Elon Musk going into space thing with low gravity and these astronauts having headaches, maybe this plays a role where they have atrophy of these suboccipital muscles. And if we had some sort of PT work in the beginning before they go out into orbit, while they are actually in the space station and they come back home, and maybe they'll be alleviated of these headaches when they return. So I think that. I, I don't see any, um, I think it's more benefit than risk to actually work on these muscles um, to say than just just leave it alone. And I think that as we age, we atrophy in these tissues, the, the subtype, and as I stated, we're going to be doing studies on the aging of these tissues, but we're going to be checking on the mitochondria in, the, in these tissues and the different types of proteins that occur in aging of these suboccipital muscles. So hopefully that we can start to say for sure that if you exercise these muscles or if you do some PT work on them, um, they will alleviate certain sequelae in the future. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I think it depends on the spectrum and on the patient, to be honest. Got it. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I'm always thinking about trying to prevent people from getting surgery. So that's where my headspace yeah. is. But I totally get your idea. Uh, you know, what if they've had surgery and, and now they have all this stuff going on? Absolutely. I I, I can see that for sure. Yeah, they're, they're, they're injecting stem cells into this area, but they're only injecting it into the superior myodor bridge. I don't think that enough information or there's been enough push on these other bridging structures at the moment. But patients who have these head, neck injuries um, where their C0, C1 is fused. They've had some promising results with stem cell injection into this area, but it's been hit or miss. So I, I don't know. There's neurosurgeons out there that are aware of these findings and they are, I, for lack of a better term, experimenting to see what type of um, modalities they can use that are more invasive in this area. Hmm. But uh, yeah, I'm sure that, you know, in the next in 10 years or so that we might be having a very different conversation right now what would be the best treatment modality for certain um, uh, pathologies. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. Um, So we talked about a variety of neurological structures. 
I did want to ask about uh, some of the sympathetic and parasympathetic involvement as well, if any. Uh, so, for example, like the superior cervical ganglion, which is sympathetic. Any any involvement? I mean, that's basically right in this area as well, right? Is there is there any direct connection you're aware of there? Uh, you know, it's more anterior. Um, okay. I think that, uh, yeah, I think that we're, we're going more into the anterior, but remember all this head and neck fascia is all connected. Yeah. The investing fascia of the head and neck is pretty sophisticated stuff, especially the alar fascia, which is in the retropharyngeal space is connected to C2. So there might be, but I'm very hesitant to say that there is at this point, but it would make sense that sympathetics would have a role in this region of anatomy. Got uh, it. If we're governing uh, pressures. Got it. Um, so we've talked about CSF flow, uh, headaches. Uh, we didn't talk a whole lot about neck pain. I think that maybe is just obvious. Uh, maybe not so obvious, but uh, I think mostly obvious <laughs> about how these things could be related to neck pain. Um, what a, I'm curious about, um, you know, the, there's a big push in, in my research area and, and motor control and whatnot and just mechanics of looking at distant sites like how far distant can this mm -hmm. area involve so you had tugged on this dural bridge and found cervical nerve roots you know moving uh, or mm -hmm. dura moving down to like t1 yeah uh that i mean that is quite distant uh so do you have any thoughts uh on what the ramifications are of that yeah, it's interesting. I, there's nerve root sleeves. The nerve root sleeves of all the ver uh, all these uh, spinal nerves, they're attached to the IVFs. Uh, this is a recent finding where they they have their own vertebral dural ligaments, and they're it's very small. But they do the every vertebrae has an attachment to the dural sleeves. So I think that although there might be exceptions to, based on variations. Um, for the most part, I think that any motion that happens up here, the body's tightly restricting motion of some of these distal uh, uh, spinal nerves, uh, and as well as the dural sleeves because of these other attachments. And these are not the only vertebrae that are attaching, meaning C1, C2, they're not the only vertebrae. They're very organized as they, they include fascia as well as periosteum. But I believe distally, we do have other sort of anchors that will prevent excessive motion uh, for distal regions. And I think this is just the body's way of tightly controlling the motion of the dura mater and spinal cord. Hmm. Yeah. I could be wrong. I could be wrong, you know, we might find something in the future. Well, you know, and it, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention what my wife always tells me. She'll, she'll get uh, somebody with low back pain and she'll, She'll work on their neck and then she'll have them stand mm -hmm. up, move around after. And they say, oh, you know, my low back pain's gone. And then she'll, you know, basically rub it in to me. <laughs> say, this is why you have to do that. <laughs> and I say, okay. I say, okay. And, uh, but anyways, she'll get a kick out of that. Um, Sorry if I shattered your wife's Oh, so you could edit that part out, Dean. If you want. <laughs> no, I'm not going to edit. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so uh, last thing while we're on this, uh, you know, t talking about all the studies, 
So I teach a class in functional anatomy at Miami University. It's it's undergraduate level, but I also teach uh, some graduate level classes as well. And, you know, one of the things that when it comes to anatomy, students oftentimes think, oh, you know, anatomy has been around as long as, you know, humans have uh, and animals. I mean, it's a part of everyday experience. And we already know everything about anatomy. Uh, given what we've been talking about for this last hour and change, what what do you how would you respond to students who might have that preconception at medical school or or just to anybody who you're having an anatomical discussion with? Yeah, I get this a lot. How did you find a new body part when we know everything about anatomy? I think that what we do is anatomy is a I hate to say it, a dying subject, but if you <laughs> one of the I had to laugh. Where, I mean yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just, it is. And, and I think one of the major issues here is that once we invented the microscope and we started looking at cells, we went through more of a um, microscopic, we tried to understand the body from a more microscopic viewpoint, and we've stepped away from this gross an anatomy. And I think that, I hope my studies have proven that we don't know everything about anatomy, especially with all these new modalities. I think one of the major issues or what, diff what the reason why I, found what I did was because I wasn't really learning from the textbooks, but I was learning from the donors themselves. And then I would go back to the textbooks and see, once I perfected it on the cadaveric specimens, I was able to go back into the textbooks and see that it wasn't exactly as it's stated um, in the book. And this is why Gray's Anatomy is on the 46th edition and they keep coming out with new editions because we keep finding new structures especially with these new modalities. And of course, there's other things like fascia that is just so understudied. It's, it's basically its own system itself. And uh, I hope that this proves it. And the other thing is everybody's always saying to me, you know, why neurosurgeons didn't see this? You have to understand that in neurosurgery, they want to go in and they want to go out. The patient's under anesthesia. They don't have time to fiddle like I did with uh, pulling on the dura and playing around and trying to figure out how distal these, the dura mater's moving you know, the patient's under anesthesia, you have to care about the patient and their health. So you don't want them under anesthesia for too long. So I guess the other thing I always tell students is that so far humans have been wrong about everything. I mean, we may revisit this in five years and say, I was wrong about all of it. I don't know. I hope not. But, uh, you know, we will find more additional uh, information here. And there seems to be, especially in this area of anatomy, where um, I think the reason why I'm so successful, if I just went to medical school and not chiropractic school, there's no way I would have found any of these structures because you're more worried about your exams in med school and things like that. And in fact, we don't study the suboccipital area in medical school as, as, as other people think we do. Um, it's an area that they're more worried about the thorax and abdomen and, and head and neck, meaning brain the things that will kill you, acute care. So my advice to medical students or chiropractic students or those who are learning anatomy is, you know, um, do your research for yourself. Uh, if, you, if you do believe in something and you see it with your own eyes, and um, one of the reasons why I, I think I am successful in this is because even though everybody said I didn't find anything, I, I knew what I saw, I believed in it, and I just became obsessed with it. So find your obsession, stick to it, and they're going to laugh at you in the beginning, but eventually, and then they'll ignore you, and then they fight you, and then you win. That's the old saying. And uh, that's, that's what ended up happening in my situation. And also take time to translate manuscripts. I think that a lot of us are just going through PubMed, reading the English 
whatever's in English, because that's our native language or maybe second language, and we ignore anything else. And if you do your homework and you look at all these other manuscripts and you take the time to translate it, you might make some connections that we have not yet in the US and um, or in Canada, right? So I think that that is the major take-home point and why I'm able to have this robust understanding of this area of anatomy. Um, maybe not the clinical aspects yet, I'm, I'm working on it, but the anatomy, I definitely feel like I have a uh, big hand on it. Uh, and it's based on all those factors that I mentioned. Yeah, I, I think those are excellent, uh, excellent points. So as we wrap things up, another question I always like to ask my guests is uh, if they have any advice to, to motivate or, or assist practitioners and students alike to uh, pursue research careers in chiropractic, it could be medicine as well in your case. Uh, or literally anatomy, any anything uh, dealing with uh, this higher education, academia. What what advice would you have? I think it all stems from we're all in this business because we want to help people, and you could do it a couple of different ways. And I think the major way that I found it worked for me anyway was to not only educate because a part of me is I, I may not meet my patients since I don't practice but I am helping through the butterfly effect. And you can do a lot, uh, you can treat a lot of people, even you can even achieve a sense of immortality by producing research like this. And even when you're long gone, you'll still be helping people. And I think that's the, that's the, that's what motivates me is that I will be able to assist people even when I'm dead and gone, just like many of the researchers before me has done including my mentor, Dr. Lance Nash. So um, that's the main motivator in, in me. It's that you're doing a greater good and it's not just this direct eye to eye, you're helping a patient and you're just getting this one-to-one -one, um, pat on the back. And uh, yeah, it, this, this butterfly effect is what, I, what, what motivates me. And I think that that would motivate a lot of students once they see their articles in print or, or doctors and when they research or publish a variation or some sort of case study. Um, you're you're doing a lot more than just the patient that's in front of you. Mm, excellent words. Well, Dr. Scully, this has been such a an incredible interview, uh, uh, just a wealth of knowledge uh, from your studies and uh, just your your thinking about the topic. So I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me, Dean. I appreciate this. Well, that was quite an interview with Dr. Frank Scully. Thanks for tuning in for this episode, and I look forward to bringing you more great episodes in the future.